Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. Today on Ask Dr. Dawn, we'll discuss how new advances in diet for refugees and children of famine are building innate resistance to future nutrition crises by building a resilient microbiome in these children. We'll talk about an old-fashioned and forgotten treatment for breast diseases like fibrocystic breast disease, fibroadenoma, uh, and maybe uh, it actually might show promise in the prevention of breast cancer. Certainly some very provocative data there that I intend to share with you a little later in the program. Bacteria get back into several surprising stories, topics like cosmetics and also spice containers and how cross-contamination is a far more common problem than you may realize. might be time to get out those antibacterial wipes before you put the spices away. But first, this week's new feature, we're calling it Gene of the Week. Last week we did thyroid deiodinase and talked a little bit at length about thyroid physiology. This one's going to be a little bit shorter, but I think equally interesting. We're talking about COMT, and this is catechol-O-methyltransferase. This is a very important methyl transfer uh, product. We'll have to start by talking about detoxification. But first of all, before we go any further, I want to tell you this is a commonly mutated gene, and it has really substantial implications that echoes what we've been talking about with the breasts a little bit. Let's, um, Let's talk about COMT. Now, Our bodies are subjected to a great many chemicals, naturally occurring chemicals, chemicals that our own glands produce, and there's a recycling system and also an elimination system. So just like you put the paper in one bin and the garbage and the compostables in another bin, your body is taking every chemical it encounters, things from food, as I said, things from your own body byproducts, and breaking them down through a series of biochemical processes. Some of it goes for recycling, and some of it goes out the chute, so to speak. And the process here is extremely important, highly evolved, and in the case of some of these enzymes or gene products, there's a fair amount of variation, and that can have implications on everything from your height to your personality uh, to your risk of breast cancer in the case of COMT. So to throw in prostate cancer too. So guys, listen up. This also affects you. So in the process of breaking down uh, a chemical, the first thing the body does is activate that chemical. A lot of these chemicals are lipid-soluble. That means they dissolve across the cell membrane, one of the ways you can get in. And they have to be rendered biologically more active, so they'll stay in the urine or stay in the bloodstream. We have to essentially take them from being nonpolar 
uncharged molecules to charged molecules, and we need a, something to hook onto them. So the first step is essentially making a little jump ring or an attachment onto the molecule. And this is a generally a hydroxy group, an OH group. And you can put that on there, and then you can take the H off and react that with another molecule. And I, I think of it a little bit like some of the jewelry making I used to do in high school, where I'd go buy findings, and I'd get these little jump rings and tweezers, and you kind of get the jump ring around both of the objects and then close it, and now you have an earring. And uh, God, that was great for Christmas presents for people, I, but uh, that's definitely an aside. Anyway, putting these jump rings on so that you can attach A to B or this to that is the first step in getting things out of the body. The second step is attaching something that will act as an anchor or a a tag to make sure that that thing goes into uh, an elimination chute, which basically we've got skin, urine, and uh, our bowels. Those are the, and the last two are the major detoxifiers, although there's quite a lot of that going on in skin as well, which is why some of, uh, why sweating and some of the other things that uh, are talked about by the naturopathic folks actually have some validity in terms of helping people detoxify. Uh, there's an, uh, for example, there's an Ayurvedic thing called oil pulling, where you put you know, virgin coconut oil or some other co- oil in your mouth and swish it around. And the idea is that you might be able to get lipid-soluble compounds, many environmental pollutants, for example, fall into that category, to transfer into the oil and then you spit the oil out. I've never really seen a study quantifying how much you could actually do, but I guess it falls into the category of if you do it every day, gradually over time, you are going to pull some stuff out. I'm not necessarily recommending for or against that. But when we talk about COMT, it's extremely important for the methylation of hormones and the breakdown of neurotransmitters. And we'll start with the uh, neurotransmitter part, because that's where it was, uh, I think, has its most popular uh, awareness. And a lot of people have heard of the warrior gene. Maybe they've heard of the warrior and the warrior phenotypes. And these are psychological behavioral manifestations statistically true, but not necessarily true for any given single individual of the COMT um, allele. So there's basically two potential versions of this. Uh, You can have one, well, three, really. You can have two copies of the G, G, uh, which is uh, guanine, guanine. And if you have a G, G, one G in a specific spot, on both copies of the gene, you're going to have a gene that has a valine in that location. And valine makes the enzyme more temperature uh, stable. So it doesn't break down as quickly. It hangs around longer and it has more activity. Sometimes a great deal more activity. If the person on the contrary has an A, an adenine in that same location, they're going to have a methionine amino acid on the enzyme, and that one is slower, quite a bit slower. We're talking about about a 400% difference in the breakdown. So in the case of neurotransmitters, what we see 
is uh, that people have uh, increased stability of their enzymes. So they're going to have uh, less dopamine in their system because they're going to break it down. uh, Well, they're going to have more dopamine, excuse me. They're going to break it down more slowly. And breaking something down more slowly tends to increase the levels. That makes sense. Uh, And it's going to be a factor of uh, more like fourfold. So you're going to have a big difference between the rapid breakdown people and the slow breakdown people. And this manifests itself as different dopamine levels in the brain, which manifests itself as people with a tendency to either be kind of full steam ahead, I'm going through it, you know, your adrenaline junkie type, and also your warrior type, the people who are you know, perhaps brave and aggressive. I don't, I don't want to necessarily say it's good to be a warrior. It's all about context, right? But also worriers. So if you're a worrier phenotype, you have less dopamine and you are more likely to be cautious. Perhaps you'll have anxiety, but perhaps you'll also not do something stupid and get killed and win a Darwin Award. So you can't necessarily assign value to either allele. And it's probably safer to have one copy of each because then you're more in the middle on these. One of the things that we see with the valine variant is, this is the one where it's faster, We uh, slower, excuse me, we see high estrogen levels in women. They don't break, they don't get rid of their estrogen very quickly. And since Estrogen can be broken down into things that are healthy and things that are toxic. If the toxic stuff is what your other enzymes are making and you aren't getting rid of it quickly, well, that leads to higher estrogen levels, more lottery tickets in the breast cancer lottery, but also higher probabilities of endometriosis and fibroids and and benign breast disease all from the extra estrogen, which is, after all, a growth factor. And guys, remember, I said you don't get off the hook either because if you have the high estrogen, the one that leads to higher estrogen levels, you're more likely to get dad bod in middle age, dad bod being uh, fat around the middle and eventually the development of male gynecomastia, which is extra breast tissue. And dad bod is actually dangerous to your health not just maybe your vanity, but also because it's associated with higher levels of prostate cancer, diabetes, and inflammation in general, which, of course, if you're a regular listener to the show, you know that it's the root of all evil. Now, another interesting thing about this is there's a study looking at the VAL mutation in adolescent girls, and what that study shows is an it pre-puberty at least, a 5.4 centimeter difference in height in those girls. And the study hasn't been done to look at, well, do they catch up after, after puberty? But that's pretty significant when you stop and think about it. That's, you know, that's basically more than two inches in height at, uh, at the age of 11 or 12 before puberty. Now we'll launch into that story that I promised you. But first, one of the most interesting facts about the microbiome is how it contributes to improving the nutrition of its hosts. That is to say, 
the owners of the territory that the microbiome inhabits. In effect, probiotics pay rent on their location by producing vitamins and enhancing the availability of dietary macronutrients. For example, vitamin K is universally deficient in newborns, term or premature, because they lack sufficient microorganisms in their gut to manufacture it from breast milk, and breast milk doesn't have a lot of vitamin K in it. Thus, infants in the United States receive a shot of vitamin K at birth to tide them over until the microbiome develops enough to take over the task of making vitamin K. And vitamin K, of course, is important to blood clotting. Deficiency leads to bleeding. In fact, one of our major drugs that we use for atrial fibrillation, warfarin or coumadin, is, uh, works by essentially interfering with the action of vitamin K and therefore causing a bleeding tendency. In premature infants, this can cause ble- bleeding into the brain, which is, you know, of course, a drastic complication that we all want to avoid. Another example is vitamin B12, which is made by certain bacteria And several of these actually are cousins of bacteria that are pathogenic, such as Pseudomonas aeruginosa. As such, high doses of antibiotics, such as a person might get in a hospital setting. I'm thinking about the hospitalized COVID patients who typically spend as much as four to six weeks in the intensive care unit receiving vast quantities of antibiotics. And In that setting, you're going to take out the microbiome. You're going to impair the production of vitamin B12, as well as all of the other B vitamins. Vitamin A and vitamin E are also affected, but despite our knowing this, we haven't connected the dots. And vitamin therapy in the ICU is frequently an afterthought, and It's subjected to the kind of conservatism. Well, we need to do the placebo-controlled double-blind study on the patient who is on a ventilator and starving and has, you know, why don't we just measure their vitamin levels and supply it if they're low? That's a simple technology. We can use that from urine, but it's not part of ICU management. It's one of those things that just goes, goes right past people because they're so focused on their tech and they are missing the basics. So probiotic bacteria, which we've all heard of, like the lactobacillus and bifidobacterium, are capable of breaking down inedible fiber into compounds that the human gut cells are able to metabolize as food. That's sure handy. And these same bacteria also can and do produce all of the other B vitamins that are such critical cofactors in many human enzymatic reactions and also in the basic process of energy production that occurs in the mitochondria. So malnutrition, whether it's acute in the ICU or chronic because of food shortages in a country that's at war or subjected to drought, those sorts, there are lots of aid and food aid going out there trying to uh, make up the gap. But these children are subject to rapid, well, if they they get back into a starvation situation, they're starving again, they're malnourished again, they don't get fully recovered. And a recent low-tech technological advance in the treatment recovery 
uh, the treatment of, recovery from, and prevention of childhood malnutrition highlights this very important symbiotic connection. So, you know, the best treatment for childhood malnutrition might seem obvious, right? More and more nutrition food. And that's been the standard for over, well, a very long time. And over the last few years, there's this thing called ready-to-use supplemental food, RUSF, which is bars and packets of paste that's intended for moderate cases of malnutrition. And these are made from rice, lentils, sugar, soy oil, and milk powder. And then there's a similar therapeutic food that's for severe cases. And this is used, it's nut-based, so therefore more expensive, but it's used in the more severe cases. And these work. But a group of researchers, uh, including a research in, uh, institute in Dhaka, Bangladesh, that I will not uh, attempt to pronounce, but the lead researcher is Tamid Ahmed. I want to give Ahmed a you know shout out because he worked with Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri, and produced a new and better mixture that actually enhances uh, gut health. I want to tell you a little bit about the process of development of this uh, because Dr. Gordon at the U- uh, Washington University started working on children with malnutrition in Malawi back in 2013. And he did twin studies. He looked at pairs of twins because he had the basic assumption that they're born together, they're raised in the same households, and that their nutritional histories would be identical. But he came across some oddities, cases in which one twin had a form of malnutrition, a protein malnutrition called kwashiorkor. Anyone uh, who was alive during the 70s remembers the poster for the concert, uh, concert for Bangladesh, which had this child with an enormous, almost pregnant level belly and no hair. If, if this picture had been in color, we would have seen that the hair was red because the pigment uh, was not being made. And kwashiorkor is definitely an insufficiency of protein. And the, uh, But what he discovered was that in the case of these both equally nourished twins, uh, one of them didn't have the same microbiome and as a result was more resistant to the kwashiorkor. And they gave them more calories and they gave them more protein and that did not shift the microbiome. And what they also found was that uh, as infant microbiomes mature, they develop different bacteria that digest food properly. Those are the what we what I was just referring to, the probiotic. So by the age of three, a healthy child has a fully developed uh, microbiome. But if the child has grown up with severe malnutrition, their microbiome is behind in development by at least a year and a half. And of course, cesarean births are a big issue with messing up the microbiome because the baby doesn't get born through the birth canal, and therefore they don't get a good exposure to their mother's microbiome. By the way, it's almost impossible to deliver a baby without pooping, and in the course of that, everything gets smeared with a mixture of poop, uh, blood, and vernix. Yes, I know, it's dinner time, but deal. And that is actually healthy. 
because those compounds get into the mouth of the baby and are the first inoculum of good bacteria. Now, you can make up ground by breastfeeding, but of course, that's difficult with a with twins. Giving them enough breast milk is pretty hard, so you're almost always using supplemental formula, which encourages the growth of a different microbiome. And of course, if you're in Bangladesh, you're you've got poor sanitation and you're getting antibiotics uh, if your parents can afford them, and the doctors hand them out, particularly in the refugee camps and in the refeeding centers. So it's kind of a perfect storm for a messed up microbiome. So Dr. Gordon did this study, both of them in 2019, um, Dr. Ahmed and Dr. Gordon, where they it was a suburb of Dhaka, and they came up with 14 different experimental diets and then tested the microbiome. And they got down to three that really seemed to work to shift the microbiome. And these are children that are not malnourished. They're just living in the slums. So then they moved to children who are malnourished and they used the the standard RUSF as a control. Now, the, the one that worked the best was made from bananas, chick beans or garbanzo beans, peanuts, and soy. That came out way on top. And the microbiomes of the children and the other groups still looked like they were untreated. But the ones who got that extra MDCF2 food actually started to look like a healthy child. So it really, really worked for them. But here's where where it really is magic. They did a follow-up study and found that the children who got that food twice a day for three months continued to grow faster. And this is important. The That food, that special food, had in the aggregate 20% fewer calories. They also were heavier for their length. They uh, continued to make ben- benefits after the intervention ended. So their microbiomes continued to develop. They had 21 types of bacteria associated with growth and, surprise, surprise, they had higher vitamin levels uh, and 70 different blood plasma markers of nutritional status, which, by the way, you can get those tests uh, in the United States. They're uh, commonly offered by the alternative labs, and you can assess your nutrition and whether or not you have issues. I particularly recommend this for people who have irritable bowel with diarrhea or people with celiac disease or Crohn's disease or any of the inflammatory bowels disorders because that's going to have an impact, not to mention people who've maybe had gastric bypass surgery or a stomach stapling or something like that, which is going to drastically change your microbiome. And maybe that's behind some of the vitamin deficiency that we see in people who theoretically shouldn't have it, uh, but do, despite having a first world enriched diet. So if this research were adopted widely, we could create a resilient group of children who are resistant to dietary impairment and resistant to the effects of malnutrition. And so I love the way they've taken the science here and put together something really, really solid 
and done it in a way that is going to improve the lives of children. So I wanted to take a moment and celebrate their accomplishment with you. You can go to AskDrDawn.com anytime should something occur to you down the line and send your question there. And that's what Dan from Baltimore, one of our podcast listeners, did. Uh, Dan's subject, prostate MRI contrast agent. Hi, Dr. Don. I'm a 63-year-old man whose PSA just reached 4.61, and my urologist is recommending an MRI to check for prostate cancer. I'm concerned, however, about the long-term effects of the conventional contrast agent used for this MRI, that is, gadolinium, a heavy metal that never fully clears from the brain once it's introduced, occasionally resulting in chronic symptoms. Uh, Are you aware of any more benign contrasting agents that have been developed recently or safer ways to check for prostate cancer? Biopsies, of course, involve their own sets of risk. My genetic testing suggests I'm somewhere in the middle of the risk for aggressive cancer should I have it, so it's not much help in tilting the scales one way or another. Well, Dan, before we uh, before we launch into the gadolinium issue, which is, uh, first of all, I want to thank you for the question, uh, because, you know, I always, I think I know what I'm talking about, but I always double check before answering a question, and there is quite a bit of new research about gadolinium, which when it was being introduced low these 30 years ago and MRIs were far starting to come forward, was promoted as totally inert and going to be cleared from the body right away. And that was a, uh, that was a case of you, you look, you find what you find where you look, not necessarily where you need to look. And in that case, it gets cleared from the plasma right away. So therefore, it, and it, a lot of it comes out in the urine. So therefore, it's good. We'll talk a little bit about the physiology and the detoxification of gadolinium in just a moment. But first, I want to just riff on the idea that you've got a a prostate of 4.6 and he's going to MRI for prostate cancer. And I will share your concerns that that may be a disproportionate thing, but probably your urologist was trained to the fact that gadolinium is inert and doesn't cause any problems except in people with extreme renal disorders. Uh, But yeah, not so much. Turns out that's not true. And unfortunately, like I said, you find what you find where you look. Like I said, in prostate cancer, 4.61 for a 63-year-old is not very scary to me. Many men in that age have an enlarged prostate. The enlarged prostate makes uh, PSA. And so one of the things that is helpful is an, a test looking at your total PSA to your free PSA. The free PSA is not protein-bound. And I always, get, I always have trouble remembering it. I always have to go, about, uh, go uh, look it up. But the ratio in prostate cancer when your PSA is between 4 and 10, the amount of protein-bound versus not protein-bound provides a certain amount of statistical information about the risk of there actually being a cancer present. And if you were falling in just on that simple test to a high-risk situation, given what we're going to be talking about in a minute, I would say going to the biopsy uh, is 
probably a better idea, but certainly having a prostate exam and seeing if there's a lump or something that needs to be pushed. Most uh, doctors will can also just temporize. There are a couple of other prostate uh, lab tests that give us more of a, a risk factor here, and also just the rate at which it's increasing. Now, if you're getting your PSA every year and it's gone up a point a year, that suggests rapid growth, which is more in line with a cancer. So the velocity of change is important. And I think your doctor is trying to be conservative and not biopsy unnecessarily realize, and thinking that the MRI is benign. But unfortunately, uh, it's not. Now, let's start with my take on gadolinium. I got a big surprise about 15 years ago because I studied heavy metal toxicity and I started doing a chelated urine test in people who were complaining of brain fog and anyone who crossed my path who had neuropathy, uh, who wasn't diabetic. And I started finding a lot of lead and a lot of mercury in particularly people who had risky occupations. Ceramic artists would have cadmium because uh, oil painters would have cadmium because it's a pigment. And these heavy metals are synergistic. So in other words, in rats, you've got something we call the lethal dose. How much do you have to give a rat to kill it? Uh, usually a population of, of rats. So we have something called the LD50. How much will kill half the rats? Because of genetic variation, right? Some are going to be more resilient than others. Uh, then there's the LD100, which is the dose that kills reliably all the rats. And the reason I'm telling you this is because the LD50 of mercury is the same as the LD1, that is to say you kill 1% of the percent, one percent of the rats, of lead plus the LD1 of mercury. These metals are additive. And so they bioaccumulate in fat, in brain, in nerves, in bone, places where there's fat. Uh, they are nonpolar, so they don't, you know, they don't, they stay in the bloodstream a very short time and then they go somewhere else. And that's true for most heavy metals. So when you get a blood test or a urine test, it tells you about the last few days. Uh, at the most, if you can get a red blood cell lead, it tells you that you haven't been exposed to high levels of lead for the last three months, which isn't helpful if you've been, uh, let's say you've for your entire life, you've been renovating early Victorians in San Francisco, you've drilled through, hammered, and inhaled a lot of lead dust in that circumstance, and it's all somewhere else a year after you retire. It's not going to be in your blood, and it's not going to be in your red cells. So if you don't look under the right rock, you're not going to find it. I started turning over that particular rock, and I would see high levels of gadolinium, which I'd been taught was eliminated from the body, and I'm like, oh, well, not so much. It's still there. I hope it's not bad. And I went and looked it up, and all I'm hearing is, well, it's bad to give gadolinium. This is 15 years ago. It's bad to give gadolinium to people with renal disease because they can get something called nephrogenic systemic fibrosis, which is kind of a scleroderma-like uh, thing where you get scar tissue forming all over your body. Not pretty. And so, okay, so I make sure the person, make sure the person's kidneys are okay and not worry about it. Mm, not so much. Recent research shows that we're also seeing gadolinium accumulation 
in the brain, the bone, and the kidney. And in, in 2015, a while back, the FDA announced that, they were, that, in fact, there were brain deposits of gadolinium and they were going to investigate. Well, that's, it's still out there and it's still being used. Uh, more recent research in both rats and in rats showed that in rats it, it accumulates in the cerebellum. In humans, it accumulates in two places in the brain, the dentate nucleus and the globus pallidus. And uh, what they found also is that it binds to calcium-gated channels. So it's not inert in the brain. It binds to uh, something that affects the action potential and could conceivably mess up the brain. Now, I'm saying conceivably, there are anecdotal reports. We don't have a real sense of how bad this is, but that it is and that we haven't really studied it is pretty clear. Now, getting back to this gadolinium, it's a heavy metal. When it comes into the body, it's chelated. That's that's to say it's attached to a substance that's going to hold onto it and let it be cleared by the kidney uh, out into the urine. And that's what we thought was going on. But it turns out that's, uh, that it does, that the chelator doesn't always stick and it detaches, which makes sense because of molecular motion. And some brands are worse than others. So there's a bunch of different chelators that are used for gadolinium. And I looked after reading your question, I could not find a comparative study of all the different versions of this looking at deposition and the uh, the sort of durability of the molecular bond under you know in vivo conditions hard to study admittedly but still it kind of creeps me out so i have to tell you i'm going to be more cautious about ordering things with gadolinium i'm going to want to have a real high uh index of suspicion that my patient might have a brain tumor or they might need an MR, that they really might have a cancer, I don't consider it to be a screening test. And really what you need is a screening test. So if you send me an email to uh, Ask Dr. Dawn, uh, that's, I'm sorry, you go to Ask Dr. Dawn and send me an email, I will send you a link to uh, an article that I think you might want to wave at your urologist. And that would be one way that we might improve the uh, quality of urological care in your community, which I think may need to happen in the in the light of this data, because how, how one doctor manages it is often how a bunch of doctors are managed it. You know, we sit around in the doctor's lounge and talk about how we manage things, and it gets a little viral. Everybody, we're all recovering medical students, for goodness sakes, so we're highly competitive, and if something seems to be better, uh, safer, or uh, less risky, or less likely to get a suit, you know, we're likely to adopt it. So I think you go to a biopsy or you go to one of these prostate-specific uh, antigen tests that I talked about and try to get a better handle on the index of suspicion because 4.61 in a 63-year-old with no family history does not freak me out. So watch that velocity knowing that even if it's 10 and it goes to 12, it might drop down to 8 the next time you check it, because that's what happens with PSA. It fluctuates. 
just to look at the other toxicities of gadolinium, because I didn't know any of this, uh, it's been associated in the test tube with actually causing cell death. We know about the nephrotoxicity. It reduces the GFR, and that's been shown in lab animals. And it can be very toxic if you've already got some problems. There have been reports of uh, reduced white blood count, presumably because it deposits in bone and is affecting the stem cells. Not so good. Uh, It also can show hepatotoxicity, again, in animals, in humans, uh, and we're finding it a lot in femurs, in people who had bone replacements. So when they have their hip replacement, one group went and took the, the bone that was removed and they tested it, and they could tell from looking at that bone whether the person had had uh, gadolinium contrast. And they could also tell us the other thing that's a little scary, which that it didn't matter how recently or how far in the past you'd had your gadolinium, it didn't correlate. So it wasn't getting out of the bone, even as the bone turns over in, you know, I think it's every decade, you pretty much replace everything in your body. And that would include the bone. Somehow the gadolinium's uh, managing to hang in there. And in overdose in those rats that I mentioned, where it accumulates in the cerebellum, we do see uh, jerking, dizziness, tremor, all the sorts of things you'd expect from nerve damage in the cerebellum. And there are anecdotal reports of uh, deterioration in humans, but the problem is it's anecdotal. And how are we ever going to do a placebo-controlled study in that, right? It's just, well, A, unethical, and B, (laughs) just not going to happen here. At the top of the hour, I promised you a discussion of iodine and the breast. So a little chemistry here. Uh, Iodine is an element. It's required in the human body. And at any given moment, you have about 50 milligrams of iodine. And about 80% of that is not in the thyroid. It's non-hormonal. We don't really know what it's doing in the rest of the body, but it's thought that maybe it's uh, there ancestrally. In other words, in evolution, the body used iodine as a uh, electron donor, and therefore it was uh, useful in getting rid of peroxide. So it's the idea, the idea is it's an antioxidant effectively. And it also seems to be able to get into the double bonds of fatty acids in cell membranes and make them less reactive to free oxygen radicals. Well, brain preservation, right? Pre- preserving those nerve cells, that sounds like a good idea. And there's also plenty of research about iodine and the breast. Now, it's taken up in the salivary gland, the gastric mucosa, and in the lactating mammary gland. And there's a, there's a compound called a sodium iodide symporter, which moves iodine around. And when a woman is pregnant, she starts making a ton of this sodium ion, uh, iodide symporter, and she concentrates iodides in the alveolar and ductal cells. And this appears to be protective against the hyperstimulation that a woman's breast gets during pregnancy. I mean, the hormone levels during pregnancy are through the roof, and yet it's very unusual 
for women to get breast cancer during uh, pregnancy, and it doesn't correlate with how many pregnancies you've had. So it seems like somehow the breast is protected. Part of that's due to estriol, which is a form of estrogen that's also produced in large quantities. And for a lot of naturopathic doctors, that's been that's what it is. It's the estriol that's protecting the breast. And so they'll give estriol uh, when they have a postmenopausal woman and they're giving her estrogen. They're trying to protect the breast. But I think and was taught and totally accept that what we really need to be thinking about doing is giving iodine uh, to women to prevent breast cancer. And there's reasons why that might, in fact, work. But um most breast cancers occur in the area that absorbs the most iodine. So we might be making that tissue uh, more vulnerable. And there have been plenty of data that shows that iodine lowers the rate of proliferation in breast tissue. And there is clinical data showing that if you have a woman, let's say, with fibrocystic breast disease and you give them uh, sodium iodine orally, they get clinical improvement in their disease. There's plenty of rat studies that show that it blocks hyperplasia of breast tissue. It's reasonable to assume that it might actually uh, work. There's also epidemiological and dietary evidence from Japan. Basically, the more fish you eat, and fish is quite rich in iodine, the less breast cancer you see epidemiologically. Japanese women with the highest iodine intake, and we're talking between 4 and 10 milligrams per day per person, have the lowest rate of breast cancer mortality in the world, and that is dietary. Yet the U.S. recommended daily allowance is based on what you need not to get a goiter, which is about 150 to 200 micrograms a day. If you check your multivitamin, I guarantee that's what it's giving you. And the data on benign breast diseases is is quite suggestive. And when you look at in vitro studies of human breast cancers, adding iodine to the cell culture slows growth of the cancers. And if they give rats that are prone to cancer of the breast a seaweed-supplemented diet, we see a reduction in the rate and speed of cancer development. So given that we're talking about a benign mineral that's eaten in levels of 4 to 10 milligrams in people on the planet with no observed ill effects, I think that we're too scared of iodine. And I think we need to rethink that and maybe start using it more readily. Uh, particularly if you have breast tenderness. And so when, when I have patients with breast tenderness, I do suggest that they take one to two milligrams, one to three milligrams of iodine uh, daily and give it a month or two and see what happens. Uh, I also think that we need to realize that bromine and chlorine and uh, are in our environment at much level higher levels than they used to be. You know, when I took home economics back in the day that they taught you home economics in uh, middle school, uh, which was junior high then, we had to sift the flour if we were going to make bread or going to make a cake or make, uh, you know, bakery goods. 
you had to sift the flour because the flour would clump in the bag. Yes, back in those horse and buggy days. And now that doesn't happen with flour. Flour contains an anti-caking ingredient. You know what that is? It's bromine. Bromine is absorbed by all the same tissues. It looks enough like iodine. It'll get into uh, it'll get into your breast, and it will get into your thyroid. And so, people who eat a lot of bakery goods are likely going to have high levels of bromine. And you can do a test to look at the halides; they're called as a group, and find it. And it correlates quite nicely with how much wheat you eat, because pretty much all the commercial wheat now has uh, anti-caking in, agents in it. Is it is bromine bad? Is it causing disease? No, but it is kind of g- getting in the way of absorbing iodine. And if your bromine levels are high and your iodine levels are relatively low, like in that 150 microgram, you may be leaving some very beneficial minerals literally on the table. So our next story talks about fluorinated ingredients. And so let's let's talk about these substances called per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances. Uh, these were taken out of cosmetics, and they're part of a class of things called forever chemicals. They don't get broken down. And I think we've been talking about how it, there's a really complex dance of things being made, broken down, changed into something else. The alchemy of physiology is really important. So having these compounds in our bodies, uh, these act as hormone disruptors, and they are also associated with a number of health issues, which is why they were taken out of uh, the taken out of the foods are the ones that were most understood were removed. Uh, But they were replaced with other compounds. What are they doing in the beauty products anyway? Well, they're smooth, they're foamy, and they're waterproof. These are very desirable in beauty products. And uh, fluorine, which is the core uh, worrisome chemical in per and polyfluoral alkyl substances, give you exactly that nice, creamy quality. But even though in the U.S. and Canada these have been removed, they were replaced with other compounds, which are not required to be listed. And so a group at the uh, Environmental Science and Technology Group of the American Chemical Society, actually in 2020 and 2021, went out and purchased 38 beauty products from local stores in Canada and online. And they they contained organofluorine compounds. They tested them. And they analyzed them for these old compounds that were supposed to have been taken out. And what they found was, yeah, they're still there, but they weren't listed as ingredients. They especially found very high levels in waterproof foundation. So ladies... Yeah, think twice about waterproof makeup. One had uh, thousands of parts per million, a level that exceeds the regulation levels. So then the researchers took a subset of purchased items and screened them for an additional 200 PFAs. And you have to use mass spectrometry for this. So it's, you know, it's a big machine and it's relatively expensive. And they found 
monohydrogen substituted perfluoroalkyl carboxylic acids in about 30% of this subset. So essentially, these compounds are transforming in the cosmetics. They researchers postulate that as the product ages, or perhaps it's in contaminated with impurities and raw materials, uh, you know, that just had a little bit of something that acted as a catalyst, we're seeing them mutate back into the dangerous stuff. Another possibility that enters my mind is once you buy the product and take it home, I'm wondering if the sort of routine bacterial contamination that happens from dipping your fingers into a cream or dropping it onto your uh, dropping it onto your hand, I'm wondering if the bacteria that are on your hand could be migrating into the product and doing what bacteria do, eating chemical bonds and transforming them into energy and changing the root compound, well, into something else, maybe not something good. I told you bacteria were going to sneak back into the story here. This just in, a government-funded study on the potential for cross-contaminating kitchen surfaces turned up an unexpected culprit. Now, we all know about the problem with salmonella in raw eggs and salmonella contamination of poultry. But, of course, there are other bacteria that can uh, happen due to uh, contamination of meats and uh, typically, it tends to be bio, it tends to be meats rather than vegetables, but it can also be like you made a salad uh, and somebody cut some raw chicken up on that cutting board a few hours earlier earlier salmonella can dwell on a surface for quite a, quite a long time, probably overnight, and most of us aren't all that diligent about cleaning our cutting boards or the knives that we use you know a few swaths. A few swaths with a soapy sponge is uh, probably all they get. Well, that's fine. That's probably good enough, particularly if you're using wood, because wood contains compounds called lignans that actually are bactericidal. Uh, So you're probably okay if you just do the soap and water wipe. But what about the metal or the glass container of oregano or mixed spices or, you know, whatever it is that you uh, like to put on your meat uh, or mix with your chicken. What about those? Well, that was what the surprise come. When consumers are preparing meals, spice containers easily become cross-contaminated and you wipe off the cutting board, but you don't wipe off the spice container. And then the microbes can be transferred from one surface to another. Uh, Garbage can lids and refrigerator handles were also high culprits, but if you Uh, Any spice container you touch when you're preparing raw meat, you need to wipe that down with a bactericidal wipe before you put it back in the cupboard. And we've got salmonella, we've got campylobacter. These are very common in chicken. And particularly among older people, they can be quite devastating and put people in the hospital. A significant portion of the 2 million infections per year of foodborne illnesses uh, come from chicken, turkey, beef, beef, pork, and game. So hand washing, we've mostly got that one down. Cleaning off the cutting board, we've mostly got that one down. But 
Uh, the researchers actually did a study, small apartment-style kitchens to large teaching kitchens in extension centers, food banks, and the meal, the prep meal, was raw ground turkey patties with a seasoning recipe and a prepackaged salad. And so they used a safe tracer bacteriophages, and they didn't tell the participants that their food safety behaviors were being examined. They just went around after the meal was prepared and swabbed kitchen utensils, cleaning areas, and test surfaces. And then they watched the people, of course, and they noticed, oh, wait, sink faucet handles and spice containers. And the most frequently contaminated object in this study was spice containers. 48% of samples showed evidence of bacterial contamination. That made me sit up and take notice and decide to talk about that because nobody's ever checked spice containers ever before in the history of food research. Now we're thinking a little bit outside of the box. Think about those faucet handles, the trash can lids, uh, the drawer pulls. It's, it's a jungle out there, and there are good bacteria and bad bacteria, and our job is to try and keep the bad bacteria out of our bodies. So I hope this food safety, cooking technique safety thing falls on fertile ground, so to speak, but not on a Petri dish. We've got just another minute uh, left before the end of the program. So I'm really quick. There is a very common environmental agent, propezamide, that is used on golf courses and uh, soccer pitches and any, any place where you're trying to kill weeds. It's also commonly applied to sports fields, fruit and vegetable crops. And the researchers... Uh, did some very complicated uh, inflammatory uh, bowel disease investigations, and I won't go through the high-tech that they used to identify it, but they found that this particular compound is uh, really critical, in, and it interferes with one of the major anti-inflammatory uh, regulatory systems in the gut. This is called the aryl hydrocarbon receptor, which I have a whole bunch of clippings about this because I've been trying to work my way through the bio- biochemistry so I could actually tell you about this in a rational fashion. Uh, we're not going to manage it in the next minute. But what I can tell you is that the rest of this article goes about how we're going to do science to engineer nanoparticles, to target the inflammatory pathway, and blah de blah 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 Great. It's going to be a great field for drug development. How about... We take these chemicals out of the environment now while we develop the chemicals to fight the chemicals. Seems to me that would be a pretty darn good idea. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now... This is Dr. Don saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Don is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.